Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. Today, we're talking with director and screenwriter Rowan Attlee on his new film, the family thriller drama Strange But True, which is out now on demand in the UK and US. It's got Amy Ryan, it's got Greg Kinnear, it's got a personal favourite of mine, Brian Cox, not the physicist, the actor. A really nice thriller that you really don't see much of these days and it's just a great little gem and you should definitely check it out. And we're talking about how he got into film, how he started producing, how he started directing, how he started screenwriting in Hollywood and what other up and coming projects he's working on. My name is Robbie McCain, I am the producer of the Filmmakers Podcast and I'm covering whilst our lovely host Charles is away shooting his epic Arthur and Merlin Knights of Camelot over in Wales and from the, some of the on-set production photos he's been sending me, sounds like he's having a whale of a time. Well, the last two weeks we've had a fair bit of fun with David Kep, Dolly Wells and Emily Mortimer. I've been joined by Phil Hawkins and Christian James, but today I'm all on my own, which is okay. Speaking of Phil Hawkins, if you haven't looked at his trailer for Star Wars Origins, his fan Star Wars film that he's made and is releasing December on YouTube, check that out now. It's amazing. He went to Tunisia. I've seen the full trailer and it looks like a cross between Raiders of the Lost Ark and the original Star Wars. What could be better? You can see links for Christian's films in the show notes as well, as well as the link to the Dare trailer, Giles's feature, which premiered at Popcorn Frights and it's coming soon. I can't wait until that one actually comes out. This episode is sponsored by Musicbed. It sucks to get bogged down in the editing process while you try and track down a soundtrack for your film. I've been there and so has the team at Musicbed. In fact, that's the entire reason why they've built their platform. By collaborating with hundreds of artists, bands and composers, they made it easier than ever for you to find the perfect song for your film and get back to the editing bay. You can download a single song, get unlimited music with a subscription or even create a custom song or score from scratch. Their roster is growing every day with more than 20,000 songs ranging from cinematic to electronic to indie rock and hip hop. To create your free account, and to learn more, go to musicbed.com. Plus, as a Filmmakers Podcast listener, they're giving you one month of subscription for free or 20% off a single song purchase. Just enter the promo code FILMMAKERSPOD when you check out. And the link to that is in the show notes. Hello, everyone. I am in Wales and I am halfway through the shoot I tried to do a diary as much as possible, but as you can imagine, it is very difficult. 
we're on set it's very busy I ended up doing a lot on Instagram so if you can be asked go to my Instagram page and you'll see lots of behind the scenes and lots of videos of what's going on but I thought I'd do a little catch up now because we've got a little break and the reason we have a little break is because we were caught in a hurricane I found this wonderful location and the problem was it was right by the sea and that's exactly where the hurricane was coming from so I had all my nights all dressed up in their lovely finery and their lovely nighting gear and I had all these horses on the beach and the horses weren't exactly playing ball anyway now suddenly they're on this salt marsh area which is soggy grassland by the sea and <laughs> there's a hurricane in their faces and they're rearing up with their actual owners so there was no chance we could get actors on it so we had to postpone pretty much that that day shooting which is a real shame but what I did do is I did sneak some shots that morning anyway of uh, my King Arthur Richard Short going across the land the wind looking amazing on him as well blowing him around but I've got some great shots and some of my nights as well so I did make the most of it and I have to say I'm really enjoying this shoot it's it's been tough it's been hard it's not been easy that's for sure but I've just got kind of stuck in me and Andy have just gone right let's do this the crew have been amazing um, you know he found some real gems of people who are just brilliant at their jobs and you just get on with it even if it's pissing down with rain which it has most days some of our locations have been flooded we couldn't shoot there we had to find different locations this is just what happens on low-budget indie filmmaking and I said that in the nicest way possible and another big news we still haven't found our Merlin um, and he shoots with us in what six days I laugh about it probably want to cry but so it's not the lack of finding an actor it's finding the right person for this uh, and the right kind of name for the sort of execs and studios behind this selling the movie in the first place but it will all work out I need to go to bed because we have big big days tomorrow we're doing my big great hall scene which is a big wedding scene and a big fight scene in there as well it's all gonna kick off it's all gonna be crazy lots of extras lots of fun stuff I'll try and keep a diary I can't promise you but I will try and do bits and pieces on set tomorrow for you so this can go out uh, on Tuesday morning which Robbie will kindly edit in so um, what else have I learned have what have I learned? I've learned I love working with actors. I've learned that being prepared is massive. And as my ending always said, being prepared is everything. It is so true. The more prepared you are, the more you can get done, the easier it is. Um, the more communication I have, the better it is. And sometimes I don't do enough of that. So I'm trying harder. And I think we might have some... Uh, all right. I don't want to say decent. I don't want to say really good I, I'm gonna say all right for now but I'm pleased with the rushes that's all I'm saying and so is everyone else um, so fingers crossed we keep that up fingers crossed we keep going and as I always say keep swimming keep swimming keep swimming right hopefully it'll be a diary for you tomorrow set and action so great, so good. So we've just wrapped day, what is it, Joel? Uh, I think ten? it's 10 or 11. 10, 11, we don't know. I'm still with two of my leads, Joel Fullimore and Stella Starker. Hello. 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 Um, what did you say then, Joel? Something about you caught something on the monitor. And... I caught something on the monitor. 
<laughs> and it looked absolutely sick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It looked really, really stunning. We're, we're doing um, a sort of big wedding scene today yeah. where all hell breaks loose afterwards. But we got some really nice shots of yeah. you two nearly getting married, right? Nearly getting married, yeah. We were on our knees for about an hour altogether. There is pictorial evidence of this. <laughs> there is. Yeah. We've got Gwyneth and we've got Modred. Now tell me about playing this role. Tell me about how, how this has been for you, this whole experience. It's been amazing. Um, she's, a, <laughs> she's, a, she's a really interesting character because you think she's just a jailed bird, just sort of nothing to do, being captored by Modred. And, uh, but then she turns out to be actually quite the fighter and uh, with uh, resilience so yeah it was been it's been really fun and mm. um, what do you make of this whole experience working with the team and stuff how has that been i think everyone is so dedicated, dedicated. That, so dedicated, dedicated and really giving it their all and so it, it's coming together really nicely i i feel very happy on this set that's good very nice Joel, what has it for you? Is this kind of the first time you've played a, a nice lead like this in any way? Yeah, it is. It's the first time I've, I've been able to look at about half a script and think, oh, I need to learn that, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. But also the first time I've played a bad guy. Um, and I absolutely love it. I relish it. I just think they're just the most exciting characters to play. Um, they have so much depth. They have so many different motives. And uh, Modred certainly has them, given he's, you know, the bastard son of King Arthur having slept with his sister and all that jazz and I'm on the throne mate loving it <laughs> has it feels a bit of castle like the whole experience of not being in the studio but actually in a real castle oh it adds so much to it like being in these vast rooms and thinking about everything that has happened in the last 900 years it really helps the character completely so see, when you're on a movie set like this and it is difficult because it is low budget things can go wrong mm-hmm. um, because it is quite high but that makes high pressure. it pressure. high pressure. Yeah. It makes it better because you have to perform. You can't take fifty takes. You have to get it right, preferably on the third. You know. Third. I like third as well. I go for love third. the third. As long as I've got a good third, we're fine. Third. Yeah, exactly. I'm fine. Um, have you found the experience sort of like you know um, the intensity of it all and the sort of basically you know how's it like being directed by me? It's absolutely brilliant. And we've actually, so, so there's a few of us who are all kind of camped away in our cottage in the middle of Wales. And we were having a chat the other day and we we're all saying, I'm not sure I should be telling you this, but I will. No, we're all saying how, how much of a pleasure it is to be directed by someone who knows exactly what they want to get out of the scene and can convey it to you as the actor with one or two words. And the yes. fact that you just say, hold this in your brain, play that thought and we're going to get the shot. And you're always right. And my favourite direction is play it like you mean it. There you go. That's um, it. That's some absolute insight. In fact, for you, directors out there, play like you mean it. Tell your actors, right? It works. That, it completely works. Absolutely works. Cheers, guys. Thought I'd give a quick chat with the camera team. How you yeah. doing? We've got Nathan. Yeah, I'm not too bad. Just yeah, uh, I've got Oscar. How are you doing? I'm all right. Yeah. How's this whole experience been for you guys? I mean, today was great, working with lots of uh, essays, but really calm, coordinated production. I like that. <laughs> that made it sound like we knew what we were doing for a second. <laughs> How's it feel like working with Andy then as DOP? What's that experience been like? Uh, Andy's really great as a DP. He's, he's really calm and collected and he knows what he wants. Uh, luckily, me and Nathan are on it. So, yes, what could 
filmmakers take from this experience from you guys? Is there anything you could get any, any advice? Anything? Definitely on this production, I've been at the mercy of natural lighting a lot more. You know, makes things look a lot more authentic, and you don't have to mess around as much in post because everything is natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so would you suggest then that people should shoot natural light a lot if they can? Definitely, yes. I mean, it does kind of show you what you can achieve with, you know, without like a huge uh, amount of kit. Um, you know, we've just been running and gunning with natural light and the setups have been really fast and, and you know, the footage still looks amazing. So, uh, you know, you don't need a lot to to make great stuff stuff, it does it does show you that filmmakers out there you can just go out there and shoot something use natural light have a good camera have a great camera team and stuff could happen right yeah pretty much cheers boys okay so let's see what's happening up here Martin, yes, mate. Podcast. How did you find that experience? Uh, wonderful. It's a great. Um, it's great to be on set and watch you do your magic, painting pictures. It's wonderful. Um, it's great. It's going to look fantastic. The uh, the look of the whole piece is just stunning, and this this setting is just incredible. Yeah, all in a castle. I know. It feels good to be in a castle, right? Yeah, absolutely. You've got to just be open to everything and pay attention. Listen to the director as always, because they've got a vision in their head, and you've just got to follow what they do and tell them and go where they say and that's about it's as simple as that really and then just do your thing as an actor you just react to everything that happens around you and and um be as truthful as possible and that's it's as simple as that and it's trying to get that across at every point no matter what role your your part is in the in the grand scheme of things you could be playing the lead you could be stood behind the lead but you're always potentially in shot so that's the important thing i think cheers martin see you later see you tomorrow how was um, today for you, Andrew, Roger? It wasn't too bad. Um, because we were in one... Thanks, Thanks, yeah, Thanks buddy. See you tomorrow, man. Um, because it was in one location, it was nice. It was good today. Big windows. Bit of a fuck when the lights started to go, but that's always the way. But yeah, really nice. Got great coverage. All the shots are nice. Very stylish. The coverage of the scene is good. Lovely day. Fantastic. Um, so this in the producer extraordinaire. How are you doing? I'm not bad. How are you? I'm all right. How's this whole experience been for you? And obviously you're in the middle of it now. So be honest. Well, I've done this before, yeah. so it's fabulous. Better with you guys though. You're awesome. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yes. <laughs> obviously. It's been a lovely day today. Lots of background artists. Uh, some nice characters in today. Um, beautiful lighting. Mm-hmm. So it's been wonderful today, and it hasn't rained, and we're inside, which is Great. ironic. I loved being in the hurricane, though. Sorry. Your dad was in the shots today, which is really nice. Mr. Paul Rhodes? Yeah. He was great. He was in my first ever short film as well, the one that made me want to become director. Oh, my dad? Yeah, Barry Brown. No, he wasn't. Yeah, he was. Ha- really? Yep. Where was I? Well, you weren't cast. No! <laughs> Big time! <laughs> Um, was he really? Yeah, 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 he was. Who did he play? He played the two um, sort of um, lusty guys who were going after the young boy who was stripping in his room. That's amazing. I just need to go and speak do about locations. Work. I need to go and do some work rather than sit around like you two wallies, you know? <laughs> I mean, right. come on now. Right. To be fair, that's what we've been doing all day, so it's, you know, it's about time. Pub? Sure. Pub. 
pub. Thanks, Lucinda. Thanks for asking. Now, I'd love to go to the pub, but um, big day tomorrow because we've got the big fight scenes. Mm. Um, and we've got one day to get it all. And it's huge. I'm I, guess I, I guess I won't see you at the pub then. <laughs> for that reason, no. <laughs> good night. Cheers. Good night. Take care. Bye. See ya. So we're just waiting for Alan, our lovely DIT slash assembly editor, to finish the final card so we can go home, have something to eat, snuggle up, drink a bottle of wine, drink a glass of wine or two, and upload the podcast for you lot. Um, I hope you enjoy this week's podcast and, you know, hope you're inspired in any way by this and go out there and make your film, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's inspirational talk from Andy, if ever you wanted one. Take care, everyone. Bye. Love you. Now I'm talking to the marvellous director and screenwriter, Rowan Attali. I'm delighted to be joined by Rowan Attali here with me today. How are you doing, Rowan? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad. How are you? I'm good. Whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm in the countryside in Yorkshire. I literally just moved here uh, two months ago with my wife uh, and two daughters. I've got a newborn child, and so uh, oh, we thought we'd give them some. Uh, thank you. We thought <laughs> we'd give them some country air for a couple of years before moving them back to the city. So, how do you balance that with obviously? when you've got to fly out to the US or something like that, is this your sort of your restive space where you, you do all your development and your writing and then you, uh, you jet out for when you actually need to be in the thick of it <laughs> when you're shooting? Yeah, you know, that's exactly it. Um, it's, uh, look, I moved to London when I was 18 years old to be a filmmaker and I've moved out of London at 37 years old. It's something that I can do now because I don't need to necessarily, you know, be available for meetings at the drop of a hat uh, anymore. And so much of what I do can be done over Skype and hmm. uh, phone calls. At the same time, I do spend more time on trains and planes <laughs> than I hoped I would, considering I've only been here a couple of months. Um, it's all good. Yeah a world of commuters but um it's important to have that work-life balance and if that means your kind of life part of it being outside of the busy sphere <laughs> or in london then that's a good thing it really is it really is you know what uh as with other filmmakers i know it seems to be uh this trend people hit 35 they start looking <laughs> right move <laughs> 36 37 they're out of there so i watched strange but true this morning Mm-hmm. Really good. I loved it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Hitchcockian, Polanski-esque in some kind of ways. Obviously the pregnancy, like Rosemary's Baby and mm-hmm. shades of things like that. But um, yeah, it's just it's been a while since I've seen like a, a family thriller like that. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Um, so much of what drew me to the... Uh, drew me to the script when I first read it was the way that it felt like a throwback to those... Uh, um, kind of 80s thrillers, you know, a lot of them cuckoo in the nest kind of thrillers, yeah. family thrillers, things yeah. like The Vanishing, uh, things like Hand That Rocks the Cradle, movies Absolutely, that we don't... Yeah. Flowers in the Attic, know, that kind of... That's yeah. it, exactly, yeah. exactly. Movies that we don't see as much of anymore, but, uh, you know, I think the audience love, I know, I certainly you know, grew up loving them, that kind of pulpy noir feel that... Um, yeah, that just draws you in. So yeah, it's uh, it's great that you saw that. It goes on the list of movies that studios don't really make anymore. Well, that's it, exactly. So obviously, you know, when I read the script, um, Fred Berger, the producer, sent it to me. We knew that we were going to be making it as an independent movie rather than mm. a studio movie. Despite the fact that we uh, you know, assembled this excellent cast, it was just, you know, um, like you say, it's, uh, it, it's a throwback. So you have to make the decision if you want to you know, craft this yeah. piece of art, you know, how are you going to go about doing it? 
We'll come back to Strange But True. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to talk about your early career. When did you first realise that you wanted to get into movies and what was your kind of immediate route towards that? Because um, I guess that must be what most people who who want to be making films, um, how do they do that? How do they take that first step? And uh, what was your first step into the industry? Well, look, the first step always begins with uh, that moment when you fall in love with the art form. Uh, for me, I was probably about five or six years old and I saw Rocky for the first time uh, with my dad. Uh, I loved the movie, um, probably for the emotions it made me feel rather than you know any kind of a... Um, deep, in-depth um, yeah. analysis of the movie. You didn't understand uh, why you liked it, but you liked it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, I found that I loved the movie as much as you know when I was ten years old, when I was fifteen years old, twenty-five, thirty. I still love the movie as much today. And, uh, naturally, I've overanalyzed it to the point, you know, <laughs> where I could ruin it. But look, it's a movie that I could love at five. It's a movie that I love today. Uh, but that wasn't what made me want to be a, a, a filmmaker. It's what made me a film fan. Mm. Um, you know, I grew up a, a part of the VHS generation, the video shop generation, and I probably bothered my parents far too much with you know how often I wanted to go. Um, I'm sure I saw the same classics that anybody in the mid thirties uh, did, but that kind of turning point for me again probably sounds a little cliched. Was when I was around fourteen years old, I saw Pulp Fiction and I saw the other Miramax movies, and I stopped thinking of movies simply being, you know, um, a Stallone movie, a Will Smith movie, mm. a uh, Denzel Washington movie, I started thinking of them as being Tarantino movies, and Robert Rodriguez movies. Um, you started thinking behind the camera rather than Exactly, what you were I started screen. looking behind the camera. Um, I think that pretty much anybody around my age, you know, they'd be lying if they said that that wasn't, you know, a turning point for them. It was when the director came, you know, really into the public consciousness, into, uh, you know, into pop culture. Uh, I, you know, see Pulp Fiction, see, you know, and then see Tarantino talking about his influences, whether they were in the French New Wave, whether they were in, you know, kind of more grindhouse or exploitation movies. Mm. I've never heard terms like French New Wave, never heard grindhouse, never heard, you know, exploitation movies. Um, but it made me want to look into what those were. And so, you know, then became that kind of self-teaching, you know, journey yeah. uh, where in as much as, you know, I love the mainstream movies of my era, you know, uh, whether it be Michael Bay movies, whether it be, you know, Tarantino movies, and spending just as much time educating myself, uh, uh, you know, in what came before. Um, and so that was the interest, you know, around that time is when I just realized, okay, this is what I want to do for a living. Now, I grew up in Barnsley uh, in South Yorkshire. <laughs> uh it's you know it's not just that you wouldn't ever meet anybody there that uh, what you know is a filmmaker or you know you would never meet anybody that would aspire to be a filmmaker. Frankly, at my school, you know, I didn't dare tell people I wanted to be a filmmaker. <laughs> and when I eventually, yeah, you know, when I eventually did, the response from one of our mates was, "What do you not fancy being an astronaut anymore?" It just seemed, uh, uh, you know, it seemed that ridiculous. So you're young. You've surrounded yourself with with movie culture. Um, what was your next step from there? Well, my next step was thinking that, look, I wanted to go to film school. But again, we didn't really have film schools as such, uh, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, in the same way we do today. There was the NFT, uh, um, you know, national, but that was more of a postgrad kind of thing. Um, but, you know, we didn't have like the NYU film school. We had film studies programs where, you know, I knew that we could go and learn film theory and that's valid. Mm. Uh, there's no issue with that. But, you know, I had this kind of fire in my belly that I wanted to be in the thick of things, you know, to to be on the set, see how a production works. Um, 
I was I completed my levels and I was going to go and study uh, um, you know film theory, do a film course. And my older brother um, Neil, who is uh, he's a composer. He's my composer composers for a lot of people, but we work together uh, still to this day. He was living in London studying music, and someone that lived in the same um, place as him had graduated from you know film studies course, uh, done the masters and whatnot, and uh, was working in a studio. And he'd got his first job there as a runner. He was a little bit uh, you know further up the ladder at this point, and he said, uh, "We're looking for runners. I can see if I can get your little brother a job." And uh, he did. And the job at first was something I thought, okay, I'll do it over the summer. But um, that job led to other jobs, and I just, you know, never ended up going to university. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, you know, just took the kind of production route. Now, the thing about going that production route is that it's not something where you start at the bottom and you can be promoted to ultimately being the director. Being a director isn't something you're promoted into. It's something that you do for yourself. Yeah, if that makes sense. You know, you can work your way up from being a runner. Through various, uh, you know, maybe to a DOP, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, and through you know various sides of production, you know, you can uh, be the third AD, second AD, become a first AD. Mm. All very important jobs, all highly skilled jobs. But, um, but at some point, a, you've got to you've got to leave the nest. Is it, exactly, is it? Yeah. exactly. Now, so I, uh, I could see that a lot of people that became directors, a lot of directors that I talked to, um, had begun by you know. Making their own shorts, which led to maybe a commercial, which led to, you know, whatever else. But the thing is that those initial shorts cost a lot of money, and I wasn't really in a position to pay for my own work that way. Um, so I ended up finding myself going through the production ranks and into producing. You know, so I was producing uh, small TV spots and music videos for other directors, because uh, whereas those directors would take a financial dive or even put money into, you know, the music videos that they were making, um, yeah, they certainly weren't living off them, but I could make a living producing. Ultimately, this led to um, a couple of guys I'd worked with asking uh, if I wanted to join their company as as a producer. And I said, well, I'll join if I can pitch creative. The company they were starting was going to be a TV sport and viral commercial company. I said, look, I do this. I can pick, uh, you know, pitch creative. Uh, they said, sure. I took the job, ended up pitching creative, and a lot of the work that we did with this company, um, I ended up directing. Mm. Uh, now, at the same time, look, we weren't making BMW commercials. We were making great stuff, uh, you know, um, and it was helping hone the craft. You know, I got to be behind the camera on professional work. First time I was ever behind the camera as a director. I, you know, I got to learn how to work with actors and work with that camera to tell a story. Uh, in this professional setting, you know, non-amateur setting, and that was, you know, hugely invaluable. But, you know, Hollywood's not knocking on your door for those kinds of viral commercials. Mm. They said, yeah, you know, they, uh, they it, this wasn't Nike. Um, and so were you getting a sense that uh, you were, like, learning with the tools, kind of um, getting that kind of experience? And were you, did you actually find that that reaffirmed, like, yes, I definitely want to do this? Or um, what was that like? Because some people, when they get on set, um, you know, like George Lucas maybe comes to mind or it's like people yeah. like that they well, realize it. it's not necessary for them uh, no it's, it's funny that you say that you know there's so many people that want to be film directors uh, in theory but the actual practice of it can be a very stressful thing you know um, look even if you're making a a, a, a TV spot small mm. commercial um, you know your short film you will be surrounded by so many people and everybody's looking to you for answers and suddenly you're no longer in the comfort of your uh, living room where you were thinking up what you were going to do. You've got to answer those questions. And it's um, it can be a very daunting and very intimidating thing. 
um, an intimidating thing to do. The way I see it is that if you, on your first day on set, look at the responsibility you have, look at the position you're in, and think of it in terms of, shit, this is terrifying, then maybe do you know one of the other jobs. And so, you know, maybe be part of the creative process in a different way. If you look at that and think, yes, this is exactly where I want to be. I actually want this responsibility on my shoulders, and I think that you're going to be in for a much easier ride. So from the first moment that I directed, it was kind of one of the happiest days of my life. Uh, I know that sounds um, hyperbole filled, but it really was. You know, I, I enjoyed the thousand questions coming at me. I enjoyed the problems that occurred that we had to find, find solutions to. And so it absolutely did, you know, reaffirm that's, you know, what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. Um, that's fantastic. But, yeah. Now I know, totally but, know what you mean as well. I'm currently working on a TV series, just producing that. It's like, you know, very low budget presenter led stuff, but even that is kind of, um, yeah, once, once you're on set, you leave that comfort zone and you need to be ready because otherwise everything falls apart basically yeah. oh it does it does you know i mean look whether you're the producer whether you're director mm. um certainly as director uh, it's yeah you, you know like you don't get a second to yourself you know if you're um mm. if you're directing people will follow you to the bathroom people will, and, and the thing <laughs> is that you know stories about that yeah <laughs> exactly and you know look the uh, the the crew that you surround yourself with on the first thing that you do, uh, you know, like I said, whether it is a short film, whether it is a TV spot, or whether it's your first feature, that crew that you're surrounding yourself with will be more experienced than you. Because your crew is not going to be made up of first-timers, even if you're a first-timer. It can't work that way. You can't all just learn on the job. You're going mm. to need professionals around you. And the thing is that, you know, in much the same way that employees at a company will be looking to the new boss or, you know, soldiers will be looking to the commanding officer, uh, they're going to see whether or not they can trust you to follow you. They're going to be making, um, you know, they're going to be forming an opinion on you and it's going to dictate the way they treat you yeah. going forward. And you know that, you know, that doesn't mean that you've got to suddenly think that you're general pattern and be a necessary <laughs> hard ass. It doesn't mean that you've got to be everyone's Give best Give a big friend, speech. It, <laughs> it, it just means that you've got to, um, you've got to be confident in what you're doing, confident enough to lead from the front so that they will have confidence in you. Um, mm. You know, which, like I said, it's, I, I love being on set. Um, I love being in that position. But there are many people that have found themselves in that position and they don't want to do it again. Mm. Or when they do it again, it's because the whole process has been like giving birth where they don't realize how fucking awful it was you know, <laughs> for them the first time around and they decided to try it again. But, yeah. So, um so whilst you were doing the, these commercials, um, was this at the time where you were producing your first few shorts? Um, I, this was, yeah, it was around that time and after it. So, you know, I kind of um, moved from the shorts into these uh, TV spots um, and whatnot. Uh, viral and, when, sorry. and when did A Good Life come up? Uh, what was that? So what happened with A Good Life uh, is uh, while, we were, while I was working in this uh, um, advertising company, I uh, had the time to start writing. What was great about that uh, situation was that we would be working helper leather on a pitch and, uh, you know, on a campaign. And then there would be downtime while we were, you know, putting together the next pitch, next campaign. And I would use that time to write my own work. I always knew that if I was going to be a feature film director, it was because I was going to write something people wanted to make that I was going to have to insist on making. Um, few people have forged the way forward doing that before, and I really felt that that was going to be my way forward. Uh, so I wrote um, 
what was at the time called Wasteland, uh, which eventually was released uh, in this country as The Rise, and the rest of the world as Wasteland. I wrote that script, and a lot of people really liked it. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, it, from start to finish, it was a difficult thing to get made. It's a first feature. But, um, and did you write that people, in like an America, US context or a UK context? Or like A UK context. Yeah, um, yeah uh, a UK context. And uh, I saw you won the, the Douglas Hickox prize and that felt very apt because it almost feels like a <laughs> it feels like a Douglas Hickox type thing like you know That's it's got it. shades um, of that sitting target and those kind of you know Oliver Reed absolutely flicks. absolutely um and you know so I wrote the script uh and we you know put it out myself and the producer Gareth Pritchard um put it out to the industry and uh a lot of people just said no right because you know it's obviously a difficult thing to do to get a movie made and the people that said we like it said, but we don't like Rowan. We want a different director on this. Um, now, I think I said earlier that, uh, you know, my first uh, uh, loving cinema was Rocky. Mm. Uh, now, you know, Stallone was my hero growing up. And I've read a thousand interviews where he talks about making Rocky, where he wrote the script and people wanted to buy it off him for a lot of money, but they didn't want it with him attached to Star. Mm. But he just kept saying, no, I'm going to, you know, if you want the movie, you've got to take me with it. And so I just kept thinking, okay, well, if he, uh, you know, can do that, then I can do that. And uh, so, you know, if anyone would say, look, we love it, we'll put it together, but not with him and not with Rowan, uh, I just kept saying, no, we'll, you know, we'll find the right people. And Gareth, the uh, producer of that movie, uh, was very supportive of that. Um, eventually, after, you know, a few almost getting over the line moments, but it collapsed, uh, we found the right for um, investors to, uh, you know, to finance it and to sell it. Uh, Molly Films were one, Bankside, uh, the sales agent were another, Headgear Films. Um, anyway, so uh, ultimately, after a kind of five, even six-year journey, we found yeah this team that were willing to push it forward with a budget of around a million dollars. Mm. And uh, we made the movie. Awesome. Yeah, and it's a really strong debut, I have to say. Really well done. It's It's hard to sort of get a good film through that kind of system these days and um yeah you did a great job How, what was it like kind of the getting the casting process for that because obviously you've got timothy spall you've got vanessa kirby before she kind of got really big uh, what was that process like because it kind of links into what we're going to talk about with strange but true as well uh, well we were working with a great uh, casting director called matt weston and uh, he was a big supporter of the project, really loved the uh, script. And um, we always knew that the, uh, the, the, the Detective Inspector West character was ultimately played by Timothy Spall. We always knew that was going to be someone where we could establish, uh, where we could cast an established star mm. uh, because the, 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 you know, the person's more mature. And the, the first person we uh, went out to with Matt was uh, Pete Postlethwaite. Oh. who, you know, uh, I, I absolutely loved as an actor. Everyone loves him. As yeah. you know, Spielberg said he was the greatest actor he'd ever worked with. And uh, Pete said yes. Uh, you know, he came on board the project, and that was just, you know, it was unbelievable to us. You've got to think we were so far outside the film industry. Fantastic, yeah. Uh, that to have, you know, such an actor say he loved the project and he wanted to do it and meet with us and whatnot, it was a, yeah, you know, it was a dream come true. Um, during that, uh, while he was on board, we were also, you know, uh, casting wider for the younger stars, looking for the uh, up-and-comers, those that were making a name for themselves in TV and whatnot. Um, of course, ultimately, we got a call uh, saying that um, Pete was unwell. He wasn't going to be able to do the movie. 
mm. which obviously was heartbreaking for so many reasons. Yeah. Um, but you know, with Matt, we said, okay, we, you know, of course, we absolutely understand that it's heartbreaking for a lot more reasons than simply won't be able to make this movie. Mm. Uh, ultimately, you know, our next choice was Tim uh, Timothy Spall, and we went out to him, and he came on board. You know, he read it within a few days and came on board. And seemed to have so much luck. Um, and then we looked at, you know, with Matt, we were looking at all the hot up and coming young actors, uh, you know, who are coming out of big TV shows like Misfits or, you know, coming off of a um, Harry Potter. Mm. Um, and that's how, you know, kind of shameless. And that's how we found the guys. That's how we found uh, uh, Luke Treadaway. We found Iwan Rion. Yeah. That's how we found, uh, um, yeah, Gerard. Uh, that, that, all the guys. And, uh, then we were looking to cast uh, um, <clears throat> Vanessa's the role. And Vanessa, casting, yeah. Exactly. And Vanessa uh, was actually probably the second person that came into audition for it. And we auditioned her alongside um, Luke Treadaway, who, you know, we'd already yeah. had the part of. And she was just absolutely fantastic. Um, we knew it was going to be her first movie role, but I mean, she was just so natural, so gifted mm. that um, the second that she walked out of the room herself, uh, the producers, at this point, Ed Barrett was working with us as well, myself, the producers and the casting director looked at each other and said, don't need to look any further. She's just going to be a huge star. And, mm. uh, I take a lot of pride in the fact that she is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it seems like, because there's that old adage that um, casting is sort of 90% of directing um you seem to be quite canny with the casting of your of your projects how long do you usually spend on that process is it like a long time mm. um you know um yeah i mean he, with both uh wasteland and with strange but, true. <laughs> strange but true obviously we were in a position where um there was a lot of material uh you know from most of the actors that we cast to look through so you can see so much before you start talking to them you know with strange but true uh we didn't audition anybody as such i just met with them mm. you know uh, to talk to them about the role i mean i've been look i've been watching um <clears throat> uh, greg kinnear since i was a kid i've been watching uh you know amy ryan for you know 15 amy ryan years. yeah from the wire <laughs> exactly. and yeah <laughs> Birdman. Uh, exactly yeah <laughs> uh, you know i've been watching um i've been watching nick robinson for you know like six seven years uh, again, the one person who I hadn't seen prior to uh, the casting process was Margaret Qualley. But I sent a couple of links um, to, you know, some, uh, some material that she'd shot, some scenes from Novichade, which mm. uh, came out a couple of years ago. And uh, uh, also the Kenzo commercial. I know it sounds strange <laughs> commercial, but the, uh, you know, the Spike uh, Jones Ken, uh, Kenzo commercial. And then she and I jumped on uh, Skype and she was just so intuitive look she had she has this way of being exceptionally intelligent while also projecting innocence which was just perfect for the character um the producers you know fred and frank Kavanaugh jones were uh, you know really excited about her. a lot of people have been talking about how talented she is and so you know we offered her the job of course you know this summer she's just become the uh, you know the biggest uh, in Hollywood, so mm. I'm kind of two for two with uh, actresses. Yeah, <laughs> you know, fantastic. At the moment, taking that jump, but yeah. So let's talk re- briefly about um, the kind of journey from the rise or wasteland and the reception of that, because you kind of also made a name for yourself as a screenwriter now. And uh, so, how? What was that? Was that a deliberate choice in terms of before? directing again or well the reception that we had for wasteland was uh, you know pretty phenomenal for us um you know we made this film in this vacuum uh, even after we made it you, you know myself uh, the producers 
still felt like we were kind of outside of the industry. Um, you know, I'd gone to London when I was 18 to be a film director and came back to Leeds to shoot my first film, uh, <laughs> you know, which was, uh, which was hilarious. Um, but you know, we were still, we, you know, we still felt like we were on the outskirts of the industry. You know, we hadn't had the film financed by BFI or by Film4. And we didn't really know that many people. Our greatest connection to the film industry was uh, Bankside Films with Stephen Kelly and Philip Hunt, um, who in a lot of ways guided our hands through the process. Uh, when we were in post-production on the film, you've got to think, we'd made this British crime film, one that we felt had um, was original, that was told with a unique voice and whatnot, but was still a British crime film. And they aren't always the most loved movies, you know. Um, they're often you know, quite heavily derided. Well, they're kind and, of um, uh, they're sort of Marmite now. I think they've become they've exactly. become like either you know you've got things like Gangster Number One or kind of uh, you know like the Douglas Hickox, Hickox ones I mentioned earlier, um, mm-hmm. where they're sort of you know top tier or it's you know become quite a magnet for you know uber low budget filmmaking and exactly uh, because it's got that genre sort of instance kind of smash and grab sort of marketing kind of exactly exactly so how do you reckon with that as a genre when there's all this baggage like already attached to it in so many meetings all the time when we were pitching we kept saying it's different you've got to understand this <laughs> different movie it's not you know it's not a throwaway movie it's it it's may got be atmosphere. Prime movie. It's about these yeah. characters it's you know etc we'd sell the living daylight to have it and you know eventually that worked to get it made uh, but then it's about what the life of the movie is going to have. Um, now, the sales agents, like I said, you know, uh, those guys were fantastic. And they said, we want to put this forward to the uh, Toronto Film Festival. And they thought, okay, well, that'd be wonderful. But um, let's see how that goes. You know, <laughs> again, that wasn't a comment on the movie. It was just a comment on how, you know, sometimes genre pictures are perceived within the yeah, industry. you're being and, rational. Uh, <laughs> that's it. Exactly. We were being rational and realistic. And then um, maybe three months after we'd shot it, uh, based on... Uh, sorry, uh, two months after we shot it, based on an early cut of the movie, we get a call from a sales agent saying that uh, we're going to premiere at Toronto. Um, that, you know, uh, that um, Cameron Bailey himself has selected the movie. Uh, yeah, to premiere that. So uh, your life's going to change a little bit. We said, okay, well, that's wow. wonderful. So we, we had to complete the movie in a very small amount of time. I mean, you know, the, the, the sound... Um, Post-production, schedule, effects, yeah, yeah, it, it all just you know like uh, uh, cut in half. Uh, but there was no way in hell we weren't making you know that premiere. And it's at that point when you know the phone starts ringing and you hear these American voices at the other end from agencies and uh, saying, "Okay, we hear you going to Toronto and we've you know read the script and we can't wait to see the movie and you know we'd like to talk about signing you and things like that." And so it's you, the world's a little bit different all of a sudden. You know, you couldn't get shot in Soho and now um, people in Hollywood are. Mm. Um, calling you out of the blue, um, which was all great. Uh, but, you know, you've got to just focus on making the movie. So we completed the movie. I mean, we took it over there while the, you know, <laughs> while the uh, film was still wet, so to speak, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, we literally, we, we, we did the quality control check the morning that we were flying out. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, you know, we took it there. We, we premiered on the Friday night, a great slot. Um, and then... So you, you weren't, know, you weren't like, doing any rendering on the plane or anything like that. I was just hoping it. that, you know, we didn't lose the uh, DCP, but you know what? It wasn't in my hands, so I'd blame someone else. <laughs> Did your sort of production kind of skills come into full play there? Or was that like when you were going through that kind of mad rush to, to get it through, was that this is a new stage of challenges for me? Or was it kind of okay, I know how to do this, I'm, I'm used to this. To a certain extent, it was a new stage of challenges, but what I've always thought is that um, 
if you're lacking a certain amount of knowledge, you know, just make sure you've got certain people that have it. Um, so Kim, um, Kim Gaster, who was our editor, I just edited, uh, you know, Strange But True as well. He's a seasoned pro, you know, he's done a bunch of movies, done a bunch of TV shows, and to a great extent, he kind of held our hand through what the process was going to be. Uh, one of our producers as well, uh, Mark Fulino, who was big champion of the movie, was a financier and a producer on the movie. He, uh, for many years, worked at uh, Molinaire, another post-production mm, yeah. uh, house. And so together, those guys kind of, you know, really just banded together to, to you know, like get it over the line. Fantastic, um, yeah. So, you know, I couldn't thank them enough for that. That's good advice, though. Surround yourself with good people who, yeah, in exactly. some areas, know more than you do. Like, <laughs> Look, I think, so, I think sometimes filmmakers starting out um, worry about, being surrounded by people that may have more experience than them. Just because they're more experienced doesn't mean they're going to try and um, leverage that to, <laughs> yeah, exactly, to usurp you. You've got, to, you've, you've, you've got to get that fear that people want your job out of your mind. I mean, look, that's a part of it. Everybody wants an opinion. When you direct in a movie, there's a lot of backseat um, directors. It's mm. part of life. Uh, but at the same time, you've got to be confident enough to, not let that in any way interfere with the movie you're trying to make, but at the same time, be smart enough to utilize what they're bringing to the table. Yeah. You know, um, all these people involved are bringing experience. They'll bring ideas. They'll bring, you know, they'll bring so much with them. They're not, you know, they, you don't just put them in a small box. Your editor doesn't just, you know, use editing equipment. They have so many ideas they will bring creatively. Producers aren't just there to put the finance together. Again, they will have, you know, great ideas. Just know how to handle it and don't handle it by shutting them out. You know, because uh, you're shutting yourself off to so much experience. And what's that like as well, being a writer as well? Because I imagine, because um, writing is all about generating ideas, whereas I guess directing, it's more about selecting the best ideas in some ways. So like, how do you, do you have to shut the, the kind of writer side of your brain off when you're, when you're in those moments in terms of, or is it is it a completely sort of different hat that you wear? Or, or do you find that, um, you know, you're kind of, you're using the same sort of skill set that you would when you're when you're screenwriting. You're always using the same kind of skill set if the uh, problem that's in front of you is about telling the story. Mm. Uh, it's you narrative know, related, it's, yeah. Exactly. If it's you know whether it's writing, whether it's directing, but it just I, I, in terms of you know how you collaborate with people, it's about being pragmatic. It's about knowing what it is that you want, you think is best for the film, but leaving the door open enough for the changing environment. That changing environment might be that a good idea comes from elsewhere. It might be that whatever it is you wanted isn't going to work out. And so you've got to fucking change. You know, you've got to think of something new. Um, it's about having that kind of, you know, complete vision, but, but not so complete that you shut off to anything else, you know? Mm, yeah, that's really good. So, you know, we, uh, we premiered the movie and then, you know, things changed. Then all of a sudden, uh, you know, you sign with the, um, some of the big agents. Um, a lot of projects start coming my way. I, it takes a little while to get used to, uh, you know, some new world. There's a, beforehand, you know, I'm getting zero scripts and, and now I'm getting, you know, 20 in a week and obviously don't even have time to read them all. And the first time you get a script sent by your agents, um, and it's something you're about to reject, you know, <laughs> if, I, I, I hear this is the same for everybody. <laughs> you write these kind of three page critiques of them, why you think it's good, but why ultimately you don't want to do it. And eventually after you've done that four or five times, they get on the phone and say, it's fine just to say pass. You yeah. know? It's okay <laughs> just to say pass. And so it takes a little while to get used to that. At the same time, um, because, you know, I wrote my first script, always, you know, being a writer. 
Um, but whereas I was uh, reluctant to say yes to certain things as a director, certain projects that came my way to develop um, as a writer, uh, sorry, you know, so I would say no as a director, but they would come up as a writer, I would take them um, if, you know, I felt I could bring something to the table on them. Um, and that ended up, you know, so that ended up taking a, you know, a portion uh, of my life. I ended up doing a lot of writing work. Mm. And because I was writing, I suppose it meant that I wasn't under any kind of financial obligation to say yes to certain movies to direct. Mm. Now, at the same time, uh, I should say that I did develop, you know, a couple of projects to direct uh, in the short term after Wasteland. But, you know, one of those projects collapsed. Another one got delayed. I had to drop out of it. It's mm. actually eventually been made with someone else. You know, typical, yeah. uh, you know, kind of. These things are part stories. of the industry, aren't they? Part and parcel. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But whereas, uh, you know, for someone who just purely directs, if a movie they're making collapses, they literally have to jump onto something else. You know, so many people yeah. will get lucky because they jump onto something great, but they will jump onto something because, you know, financially they have to. Whereas, you know, I was developing scripts for various producers and studios, writing specs and selling them. And so I wasn't in a position where I had to jump on something if, you know, something hadn't worked out with the movie I developed. That's if good. that makes sense. But that's good, I guess, because it means you can be a bit more selective with the scripts that do come your way. And as you say, like, you clearly were being very meticulous when you were first getting scripts through and even in, even when you were kind of passing on them you were giving detailed responses as to why you were yeah. passing on them so that shows to me that like you know every script you get you were carefully considering um so that kind of brings us on to strange but true and what things about that script were the things that leaked out to you so when you're selecting a script what do you look out for I, what I look out for is um, a combination of the story and uh, the strength of the characters that are pushing that story forward. Um, you know, there are projects uh, that come your way that will have a great central concept, but the writing doesn't work. You know, it's uh, you think to yourself, okay, I can do this, but I'm going to have to develop it for a long time. Maybe that's not what the producers want. Mm. Uh, you know, to make it work, I like the idea. I like the kernel, uh, you know, that's at the center of it, but uh, I don't love the um uh, but i don't love the way the it's executed yeah yeah or there'll be uh you know certain scripts where the story's not there but the writing's quite excellent uh, mm. those are actually harder to say no to because you know if you enjoy the writing yeah uh, you, you know you think okay i love the movie <laughs> yeah exactly and so you know you make the wrong choice but um with strange but true i felt drawn to this characterful drama grew into this mystery and then eventually kind of metastasizes into a thriller um, and I thought that uh, Eric had done that beautifully on the page. And later, when I read the book by John Searles, I thought that he'd also done it, you know, obviously in a different medium, in such a beautiful way. And I thought, look, you don't see many of these kinds of scripts these days. These are movies that we grew up watching, mm. but you don't see so much now. Absolutely. And so uh, after, yeah, reading it, I gave the producer, Fred Berger, a call and said, if you can finance this, I'll do it. <laughs> you know? And so, yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. 
What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. From there, did you work much with like the screenwriter or did you kind of do any sort of revisions? Because being a writer yourself, did you find it easy to work with like another writer on a project you were then ultimately directing? I found it very easy to work with another writer. I've been in that position myself where um, I've written for other directors. You know, mm. look, you've just got to, you've got to train yourself in the, you know, the, how to treat it like a professional, I suppose, for uh, mm. like a better term. Now, the, the thing is this, the, the script Though it was, uh, you know, based on John's book, um, very much had its own DNA as a screenplay, and that you know DNA came from uh, Eric Garcia. And while there were a couple of changes we wanted to make, you know, some development notes, uh, sorry, some development notes that we had, I felt it was important that Eric be the one to to do the work mm. because you know he he'd been developing the script for a long time. Uh, several years on and off, you know, with uh, other directors. And uh, what had remained true was his voice, uh, you know, in the heart of those pages. And so while there was a certain amount, but small amount of development work to do, like I said, I, I felt it was important that Eric did it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, we had we had David Kep on the other week, and he's obviously a screenwriter and a director. And he's sort of said that when he's a screenwriter, it's been interesting working with directors who also write versus directors that just direct. He said that often, if often if a director doesn't write, they're often easier to work with. <laughs> I think that's, he's only talking about a few small cases where that's, where it's maybe been difficult. But um, what's that like from, uh, just to expand a little more on your last answer, because you already mentioned it a little bit, but what's that like from the director's perspective of you, you understand that the screenwriter has their sort of vision, but how do you, but ultimately you're the one bringing it to the screen. So how do you work with those moments where you might want something changed, but you don't want it necessarily to be a point of contention with a collaborator you're working with? Yeah, I understand where you're coming from. It's funny, you know, when I'm working um, as a writer and someone else is directing, the way that I look at it is that I'm writing on behalf of a director and a producer. And so if a note comes my way that I don't agree with, I will explain to the director and to the producer, you know, those involved on, you know, that I'm in a sense uh, are essentially working for, why I'll explain to them why I don't think it's the right thing to do. Mm. And of course, they'll explain why they think it is. <laughs> again, you know, why I don't think it's the right thing to do. But ultimately, the way I always see it in that, when, when I'm at that side of the... Uh, um, uh, that side of the fence is that uh, 
writers don't make movies, directors and producers make movies. And ultimately, I'm not the one making this. Mm. You know, uh, they're the ones that are making it. And more than any, more than anything, they have to believe in what they're doing. You know, um, and so it has to be, it has to be them that's leading it. Um, and so, you know, I will go into that, for lack of a better word, argument. Um, without ego, simply, uh, you know, um, simply from the point of view that this is what I think is best. But if I don't convince you, I'm going to do what you want. And I will not try and hamstring it. I will do it absolutely to the best mm. of my ability. I will make it the best it can be. Um, but yeah, you know, so I would look at it like that. Now, so I suppose, uh, you know, looking, coming at it from the other direction as a director, that's uh, how I'd see it. But I would see it in a way that if I uh, wanted something that the screenwriter didn't, uh, that we would, you know, jump on a Skype, jump on the phone, be together in person. And if he or she explained it, uh, you know, in a way that convinced me, I would change my mind. Now, with Strange But True, that actually just, you know, didn't happen. There weren't really any instances where Eric and I weren't on the same page. We talked about things. He would, you know, say whether he thought this was a good idea or a bad idea. We actually just spoke on Skype because he was in LA, I was in London. We just spoke on Skype a great deal. And so it was just, it was a collaboration. There was never an instance where I didn't agree with him or he didn't agree with me and someone had to, you know, um, mediate. Mm. So I haven't really been in that position, you know, uh, from <laughs> a director side of things yet. Uh, but, yeah, like I said, look, you know, the, uh, uh, so I can only speak of it from the position from the as a writer. From the perspective, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's I'm, I'm here in service of your vision for the movie. Well, it sounds like a pretty healthy attitude, uh, like any, in either case. Let's get down to the actual content of the film. So I think for those who obviously haven't seen the film, uh, would you be able to give like a brief synopsis of just what it's about? And then we'll, we'll play the trailer. A family who are grieving for the death of their eldest son, who died in a tragic accident five years ago, are visited by his uh, girlfriend. She's nine months pregnant and claims that the baby is his. Uh, initially, they are outraged uh, because obviously this cannot be true. But ultimately, they decide to investigate whether or not it could in order to reestablish a connection with their lost loved one. Big night. Don't be nervous. <laughs> you want to give me some tips? Don't mess it up. I love you, honey. I love you, too. Let's get a picture. Let Phil take it, though, so it doesn't suck. <laughs> All right, big <laughs> smiles. Hey, Wolf! I love Melissa Moody! <laughs> Melissa. Hi, Philip. Wow, guess it's been a long time. It must seem strange, me showing up here after all these years. I've only ever been with Ronnie. The night that he died, five years ago. Now some strange miracle has happened. This baby inside me belongs to Ronnie. Get her out of my house. My baby sleeps in the it is completely impossible. The she cried was Not completely impossible. I will come and whisper. Does she seem stable? Your tears Why are you doing this? Baby, break Ronnie would have liked you looking out for her. You two always had a thing. 
is more answers than those you can see. I'm not crazy. It's just the only answer that there is. Is it? I get confused. What did you do to her, Richard? You just have this big web of deceit going on. afraid or more Rated PG-13 fantastic and you just heard the trailer there yeah and I really think that um, what you were saying earlier with this being not the kind of film that you necessarily see much these days it's sort of keeping on your toes um, it also it kind of reminded me as well of sort of early works of like M. Night Shyamalan when he was really sure. sort of coming up with unique visual ways to show things in the narrative mm-hmm. and um, moving you know you, moving the camera in ways that you don't normally sort of see so I think that that all works really well I was intrigued when I saw that it was a photographer that's broken their leg that's looking into a potential mystery and I was getting rear window <laughs> vibes definitely totally. from, from the opening um, with the character of Philip for those who haven't seen the film um, there's this huge kind of sense of trauma uh, that's happened like to the characters existing and you're coming sort of midway into that characters are kind of sort of haunted by this event that we that we haven't seen it seemed that really came through with the performances so how I was curious as to how you collaborated with the actors to kind of give that atmosphere uh, that's sort of there from the start of the film how I approached this story uh, um, was uh, from a visual sense I wanted to kind of mirror the uh, inner machinations of the characters. Um, when we first meet them, they're all in kind of this uh, state of suspended animation. Um, we have, you know, Philip that is laid up on the couch, literally unable to move. We have Charlene, who is kind of locked in this, in locked denial. behind her own doors. Yeah, locked in denial and again is unable to move. We have Richard that's run away to the other side of the country, but again, he can't move. And the way that I wanted to represent this um, initially is with the kind of, is the manner that I moved the camera. So the camera moves, but it moves slowly. It's almost always in the same position, even if it looks like it's moving. I think that really, you know, mirrored where they were emotionally. Now, as they, as Melissa enters their lives again and uh, drops this bombshell, um, they have a reason to suddenly become animated. And again, I wanted to kind of pick up the pace with the camera, you know, to, as opposed to it just feeling stilted. I wanted it to feel, you know, at that point more fluid. Again, as we go into the, you know, thriller that the movie becomes, the camera moves fast with the, uh, you know, the, the actors. So I wanted mm. the kind of the color scheme and the, uh, you know, the camera movement to mirror their ever-evolving inner machinations. Yeah, that's really, yeah. And I think that really comes across. A little bit about the casting. We touched on this as with The Wasteland, but um, what was that process like getting Amy Ryan and Greg Kinnear and, and Brian Cox, of course, uh, on board? It was, a, uh, you know, it was actually one of the smoothest um, casting process uh, uh, you could ever imagine. Um, Eric's uh, script was just 
so beautifully written, and the story, you know, it it, it just it jumped off the page that we got reads straight away from all the actors that we approached and got meetings with all the actors that we approached and we pretty much got all our first choices. Mm. Uh, it, you know, I don't want to lure any of these uh, um, aspiring filmmakers into a false sense of security <laughs> because trust me, that doesn't happen often. Uh, but it did here. And so, you know, it, it, it was one of those scripts that uh, is referred to uh, in Hollywood as Activate. Um, you know, the, uh, like I said, you know, we said we think Amy would be fantastic for this. I'm speaking to her on the phone, you know, within two weeks. We said Greg would be wonderful for this. Everybody thought Greg would be so wonderful for this. And again, uh, the second that he's finished on whatever shoot that he was on at that time, um, you know, he and I are on Skype. Uh, so that was, you know, that was a very easy and straightforward process for us. It was a... Uh, yeah, there was just a lot of high-fiving. Uh, you know, because the producers are American, you've got to high-five. <laughs> That's part of the culture. <laughs> exactly. Fantastic. And then once you were working with the actors on set, what was that like? Was there anything you'd learned from your from your previous film, from your debut that you um, put into action on this film? You know, I think a long time ago, I think maybe it was about 14, 15, um, I read uh, an interview with Kevin Smith and he was talking about working on his second movie and how he was working with professional actors. And mm. uh, he said, yeah, he realized that actors will want to kill you if you try line reading or if you try <laughs> acting out a scene for them first. You know, well, he didn't even use the term line reading, but it's a term that I later come to learn as line reading. Because uh, that know, is something that Kevin that, Smith does a lot, even in conversation. When you when you see him in interviews, he kind of just takes on the persona of different characters. So you can, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I think ultimately what he was describing is that you can't ever use direct direction. To yeah, don't be too didactic. Let them interpret it through their own voice. So that that had stayed with me for a long time. So, you know, from the first moment I ever worked with an actor, I uh, I, I never said, I, I never walked the blocking I want them to walk and uh, told them to repeat after me. You know, it just seems so... Because probably the first time I'd ever heard a, you know, director talk about blocking, I talked about, uh, about working with an actor, uh, it was a, this is what you don't do when I was 15. So it had been in my mind that that's not how you do it, you know, for uh, for many years. And that had kind of, you know, grown uh, into what my actual approach is. My approach is to encourage, and it's to talk, and it's to discuss. Look, I like to prep what the movie visually is going to look like to the nth degree before we get onto the set. So uh, when I'm working with my DP, when I'm working with the uh, you know camera operators and whatnot, that can be very shorthand. You mm. know, the first AD, the DP, the operators know what they're going to do so I can stand there with the actors and talk to them about performance, but not in a overly intrusive way. More, you know, never directly saying what you want them to do, talk about how you feel the actor feels, you know, what it is that you think that the, uh, you know, the character, uh, sorry, the, the character feels, what you think the character is trying to express, whether you think that, you know, that, that, that the character would want to, <clears throat> would want to express their anger or withhold it at this point, you know, so just, just to, to, to discuss. And when you speak about it in those terms where the actors, they feel, you know, that they feel a lot more comfortable. Uh, actors won't ever, you know, take having their, you know, their craft trod upon. They're mm. not props, and they should never be treated that way. You know, I think you said earlier, a lot of people say that casting is everything, and it is. And so you've got to trust your actors. Now, like I said, that doesn't mean that you pull a camera and say, do what you want. You've got to be there to support them, and they want to hear from you. They want to hear, you know, how you feel it's going, you know, whether you feel that a different energy can be brought to a certain, uh, you know, part of the performance or 
whatever it is, but treat it as um, an encouraging discussion. Um, always treat it as an encouraging discussion. And you'll get the very best from them, even when you don't have very much time. That's fantastic advice. No, really, really good. And I also wanted to talk about the editing uh, on Strange But True, because it's got quite, at times, a sort of slightly unusual, there's a lot of parallel editing going, a lot of cross-cutting between different scenes, mm-hmm. um, particularly when it kind of moves into the sort of thriller act of the of the movie was that like an intentional decision from the beginning or was that something that came through through the editing process well it's an ensemble movie um ensemble movies are notoriously difficult uh Mm. you know uh, difficult to edit once you get in post because you can find that you gravitate towards a particular character Mm. um just naturally whether it's a director or just you know the film will take you towards a specific character but this story needed to give time to each character yeah so we had to um i have to say it's a a very balanced film like even the even the kind of the smaller pieces of that ensemble they get they get a lot of moments where it really fleshes out the character more so than you would necessarily see in in typical ensemble pieces so yeah i would say it's very well balanced in that way i i appreciate that um yeah it's so it's it's a very difficult balance now what was great about eric's script is that so much of the editing work had been done so much of the cross cutting had been done in the script um, but there was so much work for, you know, for myself and uh, Kim and the producers to do in, uh, uh, once we were in post-production. But one of the things that we had to do was maintain that balance. Um, now, maintaining that balance became even trickier uh, when in post-production we sold the film to uh, CBS. Uh, sold it for, you know, a great amount of money and suddenly our independent film becomes a studio picture. And uh, when it's a studio picture, they want to test screen it. And so we did test screenings. The screenings went fantastically. Um, but then you start making changes based on them. And naturally, what, one of the changes that will come once your independent movie becomes a uh, studio movie is uh, that they want to make it shorter. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's look, it, you just know that you're getting that, you know. Um, look, the, Rowan, the audience this isn't Lawrence of Arabia here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, the, it, you know it's, it, it doesn't matter what the test audience says. You know, look, the test, the test screens were fantastic. Um, and, you know, the CBS guy was very respectful, but it was always, you've got to cut to the chase. You've got to get to that third act, you know. You've got to get there quicker. And the thing is that you can't just do that, you know, by lopping out one of the no, characters. You've no. got to balance it. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where it just sits on, you know, uh, it just sits on the peak of the roof, you know. And if you like, just blow two out on one side, they're going down. Um, and it, it did feel like that, you know. It was like, okay, if we're going to take away from one, we have to take away here as well. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, that, you know, that, it seems like it's really deftly done. I actually wouldn't, I can't imagine now what sort of the two hour or two and a half hour cut would look like at this because it does seem like it is very well paced. So. Um, I'd say if you did have to condense it from, from a longer running time, it doesn't show it all. It doesn't feel rushed. So I, I think so much, uh, you know, so much credit for that has to be given to uh, uh, to Kim. You know, Kim, like I said, he's worked in features, uh, worked in TV. Particularly when you're in TV, you have to hit a certain um, <clears throat> certain runtime. Certain runtime, run yeah. Exactly. So you know, it's it's a road he's been down uh, numerous times. So you know, when we get that note, will you, you know. You cut down the runtime. At first, it's like, right, okay, son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to do this. But uh, again, one of those moments where working with that seasoned professional, uh, working with seasoned professionals means that you've got a huge amount of expertise, you know, on your side. Mm. And how, like, uh, 
just out of interest, how did you end up meeting a lot of the people that you regularly work with? Um, was it just through different projects or how do you, uh, is it just sort of pe- when you find people, when you, when you come across them, you make a note to like definitely work with them again or. Uh, totally, totally. Um, Cause some people might be thinking, okay, well I know I need, some people might be thinking, oh, I know I need to work with seasoned professionals, but how do I go out and find those people? How do I- well, it's one of those things. Uh, look, it's uh, yeah, you, you, you pick your collaborators up along the way. Um, so uh, my composer is my brother, Neil. Mm. Um, and we've been working together since, you know. Um, he appears in one of your shorts, doesn't he? He appears. In- he does. He does. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, he appears in uh, uh, he, Wasteland as well. Yeah, he does. He's a prisoner, right? Well, That's right. Yeah, yeah. He is. Well spotted. Um, <laughs> but we've been, you know, we've been working together since the first time uh, you know, I picked up a camcorder. Uh, he's, you know, always been a uh, you know, collaborative partner in that way. Uh, I met my um, cinematographer, Stuart Bentley, through another director several years ago. I um, was lucky enough to be part of the Screen International, Stars of Tomorrow, mm-hmm. uh, just before we made Wasteland. And we all had to do this terrible photo shoot. And uh, after the photo shoot, we uh, went for a pint to commiserate about how terrible we looked in these pictures. <laughs> and uh, one of the directors there showed me um, a music video that he just done. And... Uh, you know, I uh, said, oh, that looks great. I love the lighting. Who shot it? And uh, he said, oh, TP called Stuart Bentley. Then he paused for a second and said, and he's outside. You know, he was literally crossing the street outside. And so anyway, he came in. Uh, we got to talking. He was, you know, a lot of coming DPs, done a lot of great stuff, worked with a lot of great directors. And uh, he asked me to see the script that I was putting for, you know, the putting together. And I said to him, and he wanted the job, and, you know, it worked, it worked out brilliantly. And so continued to work together. Uh, with Kim, we just, you know, we went out cold to a bunch of editors uh, on Wasteland. We were low budget, um, so we couldn't, you know, give enormous fees. They were good fees, but not enormous fees. Yeah. And so we were limited on the people that came to us. Kim uh, was a great find for us. Uh, you know, um, he'd just come off a project and really liked it. And uh, again, we worked together really well. I loved his no-nonsense approach. Um and, you know, just it, then other people that collaborated with, like uh, our sales agents, mm. Bankside, uh, you know, they've really held our hands through this process, uh, through the process on Wasteland. And so when it came to Strange But True, I, you know, spoke to Fred, the uh, producer who'd got relationships with many sales agents and said, look, I'd love it if these guys could be involved. They were, you know, brilliant with us the first time and I'd love to have them along, you know, the second time. And, uh, Again, you know, so we he brought them onto the project. Uh, I do always think that, you know, that kind of loyalty and friendship and shorthand that you can have with various people that you collaborate with is uh, hugely um, beneficial. Mm. You know, uh, when you when you know when you know someone's temperament when they're under pressure and, you know, their temperament's great, you know, they're just, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, uh, it, it, it's a relief because, you know, if you're going into something fresh with someone, you don't know how they're always mm. going to be. You need people who are going to have your back and, uh, exactly. and not but sort I, of flake on you and, yeah. That's it. But I should say that, you know, like what supersedes uh, all of that is their talents. You know, mm. I mean, it's okay someone being a great person, but they've also got to be brilliant. But yeah. Let's just assume the person you're working with is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Then it's whether or not you, you know, enjoy working with them and Absolutely. work with them on the next one. Can we talk a little bit about what 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 projects are you working on now? So you're working on your next film, Little America. Is that right? You're currently <laughs> developing that. Uh, that's right. So it's uh, we are currently out to cast, and I can't say who, but we are. Uh, 
in the process of attaching the uh, you know the lead. Mm. And so our aim is to be shooting that um, around March of next year. Uh, hopefully, March of next year means March of next year. It could mean July. That's generally how these things go. Uh, but hopefully, within the next few weeks, we'll uh, uh, yeah we'll be getting our prep dates. Fantastic. And you've written that as well, correct? Or, I have. Yes, yeah. I wrote that on spec and. Uh, and solve it. And is it uh, is that a new sort of set of challenges that you you'll be working on? Do you think is it sort of a, a next sort of stage, or is it uh, familiar territory for you? There's always familiar territory. You know, <laughs> the bare bones of uh, uh, the bare bones mix. of filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, the bare bones of filmmaking will always be the same. You know, ultimately it will be about you know speaking to the production designer about what you want the sets or you know what not to look like. It will be speaking with the actors about the performance. Uh, it'll be done on a bigger scale. Um, but the you know the fundamentals are the same. Um, but whereas when you're making an independent film, you're often uh, um, restricted um, from just your general vision by what you can actually achieve with the budget. Yeah. With this movie, that won't be such a problem. But at the same time, others will. You know, there'll be other um, obstacles. To face, mm. obviously, when you're uh, working with a larger amount of money, there's a lot more at stake, and therefore you've just got to uh, deal with it in a certain way. So, as I said, the fundamentals of filmmaking, whether you're making your first short or you're making a Marvel movie, are pretty similar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but the, uh, yeah, and they'll, they'll always have their issues, just a different set. So, lastly, just some advice, I think, for filmmakers. Um, what would you say to someone who's maybe they're they're making shorts and they're looking to move to their their first feature um what advice would you give them that thick skin you already have make sure you grow it even thicker um look when it comes to making your first movie uh i'll say i'll, I'll just use my own experience when it came to making my first movie if we went out to 50 different financiers uh you know producers etc uh, funding bodies to put the film together um, 47 of them said no. Some of them said no in quite rude fashion. Some of them said no politely, but we got rejected uh, by so many people. Each time it hurts, but you've got to dust yourself off. When it comes to making your second feature, your third, your fourth, your fifth, you will face rejection. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how far down your career you are, unless you're Christopher Nolan. Um, well, even uh, will... Mark Scorsese couldn't get studio money for The Irishman. That's why he went to exactly. Netflix. <laughs> you, you will always, throughout your career, uh, get rejection. You will uh, you will wake up to an email saying one actress that your uh, you know is your dream actress for a project is in, and uh, the other person that you've been speaking to to fill out the other major role that you know means the financing's in place. And you've spoken to them a dozen times on Skype, you know, uh, and uh, you're expecting them to be in being prep. You will get that phone call saying, yeah, actually, they're going to do something else. It doesn't matter where you are in your career. You, as a fil- as filmmakers, well, you know, just like as, uh, as actors and actresses, you will face a lot of rejection. And uh, I wish I could tell you that you will, you will eventually be okay with it. You won't. <laughs> but what you do need, what you do need, is just develop that thick skin, so you can just, you know, dust yourself off and go again. Because you will eventually get there. It's mm. just, yeah, you know, that's uh, that's the that's a cross we have to bear. Yeah, and just making your you're dealing, you're dealing with stuff mechanisms and your coping mechanisms more sophisticated on the way, I guess. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, look, we all limit our expectations. We always do. Um. At the same time, you know, you get so, so excited when something's about to happen. And then, you know, that phone call comes that says that it isn't or it's delayed. It's just, you know, it's uh, um, it's just a fact of life. 
So, but I do know a lot of filmmakers that uh, have trouble dealing with it. Mm. You know, uh, after the first film, they'll think that he won't be like that on the second, but it is. Mm. And he will be like that, you know, on the third. But the uh, the sour makes the sweet even sweeter, <laughs> as they say. So, uh, you know, just like I said, look, I think ultimately it's just, it's just about hanging in there. You know, um, if it's not happening tomorrow, push hard enough and it'll happen next week, you know? Fantastic. So, Rowan, thank you so much for your time. So, Strange But True, where can people see that? Where can people check that out? Uh, in the UK, currently, you can see it on uh, video on demand platforms. Uh, various places around the world where this is being heard, you'll be seeing it in the theaters and on VOD platforms. Just Google it. You'll find it. Mm, I highly recommend you to check it out, especially if you're a big fan of drama with honest performances that sort of sticks with you and is like very much about the characters and it's very much a sort of chamber piece in a way. So if you're, if you're lacking that in your life with all the kind of big explosive action films that are going on, then definitely check it out. So where can people check out uh, in the UK? It's known as The Rise, but around the rest of the world, it's The Wasteland. Um, is that on video on demand as well? or? It is. It'll be on uh, most of the video on demand platforms. I think it might have just left Netflix last week in the UK, but mm. it's available in uh, other countries. Otherwise, uh, yeah, Prime Video, um, uh, iTunes, the rest of them. These things are all cyclical. It'll be back on Netflix, I'm sure, yeah. in the next couple of months. Rowan, where can people follow you on the uh, online? <laughs> Uh, I do have a t- <laughs> I do have a Twitter account, but I don't necessarily use it very often. Mm. Uh, I find that uh, <laughs> I find you know my Twitter can be a little bit of a strange place. I imagine it saves a lot of time when you're when you're writing or when you're when you're working on other projects, not to have to constantly check. Yeah, if I was uh, overly involved in social media, I would never put pen to paper. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the most difficult things about being a writer is uh, forcing yourself to stare at the right screen, you know? So, uh, yeah, that was a constant social media. I think that mm-hmm. my uh, output would be severely diminished. So where do you sort of uh, interact with the filmmaking community? I mean, I'm guessing at festivals and other events and things like that. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, yeah, always at festivals, uh, you know, like you say, you know, certain events and just in the social life, you know, so many of uh, my friends and well, all my colleagues are filmmakers, so... Yeah, try to uh, I try to go old school, do it face to face. We had Colin Gowdy uh, on the other week, uh, who's the editor of Rogue One, and uh, he's the same. He was just like, "Yeah, you can't you can't find me online, but come to come to the bar at this place at this festival, and you'll find me there." <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, Rowan Attlee, uh, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, looking forward to your next project. Fantastic, pleasure was all mine. So thank you so much, Rowan. You can't follow him on Twitter. But uh, you can follow the Filmmakers Podcast at Filmmakers Pod. And you can follow me at Robbie McCain. You can follow Giles Alderson at Giles Alderson. Give him a tweet, why don't you, whilst he's uh, battling away in Wales with Arthur and Merlin, Knights of Camelot. Remember, being prepared is everything. You can make your indie film, but know who your audience is. And get out there and do it. And remember, if you're lucky enough to do well and rise up, it's your duty to send the elevator back down. If you enjoy listening to this, please like, share and subscribe to us on iTunes and uh, give us a little review. Why not? Only five star ones, though. We'll be back next Tuesday. And until then, stay well, work hard and take another step forward to making your indie film. Take care now.